Hello, I am Michael. Ergo, this is Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we inexorably do a deep dive analysis into a film. Inevitably, we are talking about The Matrix Reloaded, the 2003 film written and directed by Lana and Lily Wachowski. I am concurrently joined by the Concordant League Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Arand. Hello, everybody. Brian Bittner. Hello, vis-a-vis hello. And Alex Calleros. <laughs> Please. <laughs> how you guys doing how, how we feeling uh we're, we're... great now <laughs> uh so we're gonna talk about the matrix reloaded so we are yeah. continuing our series on the matrix the month of the matrix leading up to resurrections which is getting closer and closer every day as time does uh <laughs> so the Matrix Reloaded is a different movie than The Matrix. And uh-huh. I felt yes. that very hard watching it this time. <laughs> uh, I remember when it was coming out, I was like super excited because it's The Matrix and they're going to make more. And I'm, you know, what, 16 or 17. And it's like, yes, this is the time give it to me. This is the most excited I've ever been. The trailers were insane. It was like the most hype I've ever had for anything that's ever happened in my entire life. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So expectations were high for me. Uh, What about you guys? I'm going to start with Brian because Alex, I know what your answer is, but Brian, what were you looking like? Were you aware of the movie by this point? Uh, Yeah, I was definitely aware that there was there were sequels being made and the whole story around them they were being shot side by side and they like put 20 vfx studios out of business or something <laughs> and, uh, and i think my first reaction was just like why sequels to the matrix like i just kind of didn't get it I, you know i also this was coming out of the 90s where sequels were other than something like terminator 2 it's like they were all just kind of we're just doing the first plot again, mm-hmm. but this time we're in Africa or whatever. Like it was just <laughs> sort of, you know, like sequels were kind of a bad word at that point. So when Pirates and Matrix were like, we're doing more movies, I was like, well, why? Um, and then also the question of like, how do you do a sequel to a movie that ends with someone becoming like omnipotent, basically? <laughs> like what what is what is there to do? Um, and it's funny because talking about The Matrix now with you guys, the first movie, how it spends half the movie basically um, setting up a world like more than yeah. most movies do. It's like, well, yeah, I guess why not? Why wouldn't you make more content in this universe? You know, if you've spent so much time setting it up. Um, and then I know I told this story on uh, on, I think, our Star Wars new films podcast, but I went to the Ziegfeld Theater and saw Attack of the Clones three times in the first nine hours it was out. And they played the same wow. trailers every time. So I was just, you know, yelling Will Smith's lines back in him for the Men in Black uh, 2 trailer. Um, and, uh, but the first, the, the, this was the first time we saw the Reloaded Re- um, Revolutions trailer. And it's just this theater of, you know, 2,000 people or 1,600 people, whatever it was. And just the screen goes dark and quiet and you can just hear that, see this, 
the characters come down and just everyone explodes and erupts and <laughs> my friend my friend put it the best way he said the yoda fight in attack of the clones was the coolest thing i had seen or no the matrix trailer was the coolest thing i had ever seen until a few minutes later when i saw the yoda fight and just like well this is awesome really cool um and uh and yeah like you know it had it closes with that shot in the chateau where neo was going up the stairs and someone's running across the wall and mm-hmm. someone's jumping up at him and it's just like okay I, i'm on board let's do it um, and then I saw the movie and, um, and uh, people were kind of disappointed, <laughs> you know, it's like everyone kept focusing on, uh, on the bump and grind scene. And I'm like, but like everything in this movie is trying to do something sort of symbolic. They're clear. There's clearly this Messiah story. So, but it's like, if Neo is the Messiah, then, but the bump and grind is this like Sodom and Gomorrah, but like that's in the place where the Messiah live. Like, I don't quite get it, but I feel like they're setting up something. They're asking a lot of questions. So I think I can't decide how I feel about the second movie until I see the third movie and see how it deals with all those questions. Uh, it doesn't. Um, but uh, but I, I sort of was def- I, I defended this movie quite a bit at the time until I saw the third movie and then sort of kind of was like, eh, and, and then my. My general opinion of the sequels has just been not positive and rewatching them. I'm like, look, there's good stuff in here. There's a lot of promising stuff here and we can definitely get into it. Uh, but ultimately that um, that I find them to be disappointing. But this movie in particular of of the sequels, there's a, there's a lot of good stuff here. A lot of uh, a lot of fun moments, you know, even if it doesn't all tie together perfectly. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. OK. And Trisha. So what about you? What what were you like going into this movie? So um, I love The Matrix. Uh, and I like couldn't, I just couldn't have been more excited. Um, I remember spending, like making sure that I watched all the animatrix and like making sure that I was like getting all the info as it was being, you know, released to the public. So it was like, we know this thing about it now. We know that thing about it now. This person has been cast. Um, the same way that at the time I was, everybody was doing was like Harry Potter movies. They're like, oh my God, they cast the next, you know, professor at Hogwarts and it's this person, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and so I just, you know, was unbelievably excited to watch it. Um, I remember opening night, I had to go with my father because I was not 17 years old and they were carting wow. at the, the theater that I went into. Um, and you can't go see a rated R movie if you're not 17 without an adult. So I talked my dad into going with me and my friend Jen, who is my Matrix friend and also listens to this podcast. Hello, Jen. Um, we were just just so excited. And, and I remember walking out of the theater and like still just being like, Oh yeah. Oh my God. I love this. I love the matrix. And, um, you know, I don't think it's actually been a little bit of an unpleasant experience, um, watching this time around because I have up until this point, never thought critically about reloaded or revolution (laughs) whatsoever. I've only been experiencing them with my little 16 year old brain and my little 16 year old heart. And, just had have never had one problem with them at all. Like, you know, I read criticisms at the time and I was like, ah, I love the Matrix. Ah, I love it. <laughs> like, and and just absolutely did not absorb any of that or take any of it to heart. Um, and I I've never had one bad thought about these movies ever. <laughs> like they're, you know, they just 
are a part of a Denial thing. Denial is I the love. most predictable human emotion. Isn't it? The- <laughs> 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 um, I, they're just part of a thing that I love, you know? And so, like, it was, and for some reason, here's what's one thing I, I do want to talk about, maybe in this episode or maybe the next one. Um, the Matrix fandom is, at least in my experience, not very vocal. And if they are, they're not that toxic. Like, I, I don't remember getting into like fights with you know, conversational fights with like film bros about like the which is the best matrix movie or like i guess that's not a contest but you know what's wrong yeah. with this or that or like i don't know i just feel like mm-hmm. there's a, a lot of love in the fandom and not a lot of toxicity and so i think that's another reason that like i never had to defend these movies to anybody because nobody was really trying to be like you like reloaded you're dumb like no one ever said that to me and so i haven't had to be like well, let me actually outline the things that I think do really work, um, mm. which we can get into. But yeah, it was literally last night after we did our patron watch along on revolutions. Thank you, Alex, for Sorry, organizing Trisha. those. <laughs> I, I was sitting there and I was just like, I have to pull this movie apart on a podcast. I've never done this before. I've never really looked at it with my film critic glasses on at all. And I, (sighs) I'm ready. I'm ready. Um, But yeah, I love the matrix. I love all things, the matrix, including these films. Um, Even though I'm prepared to discuss in depth. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. We, we appreciate your willingness to. Alex. What tell us about Reloaded? Yeah, I mean, I identify strongly with both you and Trisha uh, thinking about that moment in my life. I mean, that was 2003 was the year that Return of the King also came out. Um, Mm -hmm. So it was the year of like, we're going to get the conclusion to the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which I was obsessed with. We're going to get two sequels to The Matrix, which I was equally obsessed with all in one year and just you know the trailers the 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 joint trailer with both movies that mm-hmm. played before attack of the clones the best like, thing ever made it's like the <laughs> hype is insane and then even you know all the trailers that came out for reloaded uh even though there was some eyebrow raising when i saw some burly brawl shots i'm like i don't know if i like the way that looks but the music is so goddamn cool and like it's just the, the way it's cut together is so awesome and I think with the new movie too, with Resurrections, I feel like the marketing for the Matrix movies has always been so well done. And the marketing just, you know, I was just their puppet. I was so excited. (laughs) Same like with you, Trisha, every piece of information. I watched all the Animatrix. I played the video game into the Matrix. I was absorbing every piece of like content they would allow me to have uh, regarding this franchise. And so opening night, I, I may have seen like a midnight showing. I don't, I forget back yeah. then, you know, how it worked. If they did like the 7 PM the day before, I don't know if they did. No, they, it was true midnight. You had to go at yeah. true mm. midnight. Yeah. To yeah. go And so it was like a that. school. <laughs> yeah. It was like a school night yep. with, with my dad also uh-huh. uh, <laughs> went, went to the local theater, saw the midnight showing and, and yeah, I, I didn't walk out of the movie, you know, having this sense of like, oh, that was a bad movie or um, there's something wrong with that movie. Even it was more of just processing. Like, what did I just see? 
Mm-hmm. I feel like so much of it went over my head. It was different. It was new. It wasn't what I expected, but also clearly like a lot of intentional things are being done here. That final scene with the architect, he said so much and I couldn't follow half of it. And I think it's like the key to the movie. I got to rewatch it. And so I, I, I walked away from the movie, uh, you know, loving the action scenes um, with some exceptions uh, and being really intrigued. And it really just wanted, it made me want to dive into the lore and mm-hmm. the world more. Like I, I was like, I wanted to rewatch Animatrix and, and figure out what I'm missing and enter the matrix. You know, where is Judith Pinkett Smith come from when she's driving her car? I'm going to play that level in the game now. I, like the whole multimedia thing was like fine with me at that time. I wasn't upset that the movie wasn't giving me critical information. I was just down with it all. Um, and so, yeah, it's been interesting over the years to revisit it and, and then start to feel like, especially in comparison with the first film, just yeah. the lost potential here. You know, there's so many interesting ideas. The Wachowskis, as we talked about in our last episode, I mean, they're, they're these Renaissance people just pulling from every possible source of philosophy, religion, film history. Uh, and it's that's really cool. And it's really great when they make a movie like The Matrix, where all of that stuff is integrated into a story that just in and of itself is so compelling and so accessible and can be read on multiple levels. And I think the more I rewatched Reloaded, I was realizing this is like the splintering of that integration. This is now uh, a scene that is a pure action scene with no other real meaning. And then a scene that is just Mm. a philosophical lecture, like just on its face, a character is just going to give a lecture now for no particular story reason. Um, You know, in the first Matrix movie, there is a lot of talk that is philosophical, but it's always in the context of a scene where somebody has clear motivations. You know, Morpheus is trying to, you know, introduce Neo to this world. It makes sense that he's speaking this way. Uh, Agent Smith is trying to crack Morpheus's mind. And so he's going to try to break him by telling him humans are a virus. And, you know, so that idea is coming out as part of a scene with stakes and tension. And then, yeah, Reloaded is just so full of scenes where it's like, we're going to stand here now. And we're going to talk about how the machines recycle our water. And doesn't that make you think about how mm. like we need machines and machines need us? And it's like, but, but why is Neo standing here next to this old man counselor for like 10 minutes? Like, this is not compelling. <laughs> Um, and so that that became really my problem with the movie. The more I rewatched it, was just oh man, like everything that was so great about the first one, that integration, which yeah. was so one of a kind, so magical, they didn't pull it off here. And it seems like they weren't even trying to pull it off. And it's right. hard to, you know, they, they were the magicians behind the curtain. They didn't give interviews. That they, they were in the behind the scenes. The Wachowskis. So you, you can't really know what was intention. What was kind of just didn't come together the way they hoped it would. Um, but it, it almost feels like they willfully like weren't trying to integrate in this one. It was it was almost like we got all the money in the world to make these sequels. And now we're going to not worry about trying to sell this to a mass audience. We're going to do maybe what we like want to do, which is we want to have you sit through a lecture right now. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I it, it, We can't know their minds. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah. it, I wonder if there's something about the lack of constraints. You know, in the first mm. movie, they're having to desperately convince these studio executives to let them make this expensive blockbuster they're store about storyboarding out every single shot in the movie to prove that they have a vision um and 
maybe there is something about the lack of constraints they had for these sequels that led to a lack of discipline when it came to thinking it through in that like inter integrated way. Hmm. Right. I don't know. They, they also wrote two movies and short films and a video game right. in like, I don't know, maybe 18 months or something. Cause if you right. think about exactly. when production would have had to actually start on all of this stuff, you know? So I think that, yeah, I think a lot of stuff probably ended up just being not first draft necessarily, but they didn't really have time to say like, Hey, couldn't we take this idea? Cause like, yeah, as you were saying the first movie, every action thing is doing a critical plot thing and every sort of exposition you know philosophy thing is is embedded in something really compelling and action-packed and that kind of thing and this movie is like here's an action scene that's just an action scene and it's going to go on for like twice as long right. as it probably needs to and here's a conversation that's just a conversation and it's going to go on yeah. for probably twice as long as it needs to like yeah. i feel like the the sequence of scenes that kind of encapsulates all that for me is when they go back into the matrix and Neo has to fight Seraph because you can only really know someone once you fight them. So like there's a fight scene now because it feels to me when I'm watching it and even in the theater, the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, I guess it's time for a fight scene. So they put a fight scene here that doesn't have right. any consequences. They fight, they stop, and then they go in and then the Oracle gives a big lecturish exposition thing, which We're is talk interesting. About that scene. Like I think there's like, you know, interesting determinism discussions and stuff in it. Uh, so it's not like the ideas aren't interesting, but it is just Neo asking questions and her just speaking and speaking and speaking. And then it goes into Agent Smith fight, which starts a little bit in the realm of like, okay, this is pretty cool. And then ends with full bouncy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's literally no humans for the last, like, I don't know, yeah. three minutes of that fight or something. It's just all cartoon. Yeah. I had a really horrible sinking feeling rewatching these films this time around where I'm like, oh no, Bouncy came from the Matrix. Like they made Bouncy. <laughs> right. they, they, they like, they innovated the digital double thing where nobody is yep. real and everything is Bouncy. That's so sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And in fairness, you know, I talked about not thinking critically about these movies at all. I do remember on the night of seeing this film or maybe the day after going like, well, there are parts of it that just look like a video game. Like, there, there are parts of it that just right. look. Um, and at the time, like, you know, sometimes we look back on movies that are, are 20 or 30 or 40 years old and go like, well, that was cutting edge. And, and to be clear, this was cutting edge. Um, but it didn't look better than, than it looks now. Like at the time people right. were bumping on it. I was reading reviews today from critics that, that bumped on it really hard, back, even back in 2003, some of that stuff, but especially the Burley Brawl. Now, the thing that I like about the Burley Brawl is that the first 12 Agent Smiths are all stuntmen. Um, and right. it's, mm -hmm. it's all, you know, that's all real and cool. And so like, the idea of the burly brawl. Now, I think your criticism is fair, Alex, of like, I'm not really sure what the like layering is happening here. It's really just like Smith is tries to clone Neo, he fails, and then there's a big fight. Right. But it is a cool idea of like, if you have this device that Smith is cloning himself and he is Neo's sworn enemy, then you know. <laughs> Smiths with a dollar sign through the S is a pretty good idea for for a fight sequence, and like up to twelve of them with real you know stuntmen fighting is is a cool idea for a sequence, and I really right. like it up until that point. Same, I'm rewatching mm -hmm. it. 
up until the point i think where neo like pulls the like the big pull out yes. of the ground and starts yeah, swinging around that. up until that point it's actually pretty fantastic and yeah and no. the the visual effects look great the choreography is amazing mm -hmm. uh and, and so it, it's it's a kind of thing where it's it's almost like i just wish they didn't feel like they had to push so far there's mm, almost right. like a it's almost like a dare energy like i yeah. dare you you know john gata to like figure out how to make neo fight like a thousand smiths mm -hmm. and but but it's not actually a better scene it's not more impressive to us actually right. i think if neo he's, he can fly away anytime you know so if he flew away before he picked up that pull out of the ground that would have been an awesome scene. It would have been memorable. It would have been like the him fighting. Oh, it's still memorable. Scene. <laughs> it's definitely memorable. But it would have left you wanting more. Sure, sure. Not feeling like exactly. You want less. That's yeah. the thing is with with all the big you know key fight scenes. Uh, I mean that that's the big set piece, and then there's the car chase set piece. The car chase is amazing, but I always am ready for it to be over before they fight on top of that semi truck and like when mm. they're when they're fighting on top of the truck and it's just so green screen they're so not obviously like wind interacting with their bodies as they just kind of like run around on top of this truck moving you know 60 miles an hour um i'm just kind of tired i'm exhausted i'm ready for the scene to be over and it already had reached such a crescendo you know with trinity on the motorcycle and handing off the key maker like leave me wanting more and over and over again the movie just keeps going 17 year old michael in the theater completely disagreed and that was okay. like 20 minutes of just like the most freaking pumped i've ever been in my life to the point I mean, where i was same. like truly yeah. truly annoying the people sitting next to me like <laughs> when all the when the car chase climaxes with you know the two semis hitting each other and then it's slow yes. motion and there's ripples and like i was like jumping out of my seat literally it's <laughs> truly the most obnoxious i've ever been in my life and i still kind of feel guilty about it when they cut to link and he goes yes yes like, yeah. yeah we yeah. all did that like it yeah. was right. it was a theatrical experience yeah totally I think the most the most obnoxious I've ever been was during the Yoda fight in Attack of the Clones, <laughs> because again, it's like there's there is a difference between your I'm on this ride for the very first time, um, you know, and, and you are just throwing action at my face and I'm just like it's pumping through my body versus like okay but now I've seen the movie and am I actually going to enjoy this or am I going and and you know the matrix or plenty of other movies we can talk about like the the action sequences are great the, the 20th time you watch them and then and then this movie is um you know you know you were you guys were all calling attention to it's just this movie like everything calls attention to itself everything kind of overstays its welcome the first movie I, you know i even said before rewatching the sequels on, on when we recorded the first episode i was like everything is sort of restrained in the first movie like i would guess there's probably only maybe 90 seconds of, of slow-mo slash bullet time in the first matrix because like every time it happens it only happens for a few seconds and it's usually only once per scene i i wouldn't be surprised if there were 10 minutes of bullet time and in, in <laughs> um it just keeps you know and it's like the bump and grind scene. It's like, there's there's no, there's nothing inherently wrong with the idea of like, we're going to show the machines that we are celebrating, you know, and then we're having a big party. And then it goes on for like four and a half minutes or something. The full it just music keeps going. track. Yeah. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, and and the burly brawl, it's like, leave me wanting more. And it just keeps going and keeps going. And like, even the sound design feels extra. Like, everything's like a big like whoosh, you know. Uh, and, and I think that Blankens. that is the... <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that is the most pins. frustrating thing is, is just that it's like 
that it's it's not just doing stuff maybe more than it should it's also calling attention to itself it is doing the like look how cool of a thing we did mm. right and i feel like the the great example of that or the one that sticks out to me there there's a lot of obvious ones i guess obviously where the burly brawl and the camera's gonna fly around and there's slow-mo and he's flying in the air and all that stuff but for me it's the the car chase sequence where you know trinity gets on the motorcycle and is driving against traffic and all of the CG cars look really believable, but then they have the camera fly through the underside yeah. of a truck, which just immediately waves red flags at the audience saying like, this is not real. Like, this is not mm -hmm. possible. And I feel like that's like, that's the moment where I'm always like, I, I get the impulse to decide to do that because it's cool, but it's breaking what you're talking about. The restraint that lets the action feel real and let us stay in the movie and not kind of knock us out with the like making us literally wonder how they did that during that the actual scenes when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over 600 each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply Anyway, that moment. I do want to praise the freeway chase, though, for a little while while we're here, because yes, sure. the yes. design of that sequence is really brilliant. And, it, you know, except for the couple of moments that you're pointing out, Michael, which I, I agree with you that I really bumped on them this time around, um, where, yeah, the camera's doing things that it can cannot do if, if the all the cars are real, <laughs> um, except for those couple of moments. There's a lot of really incredible like uh, visual effects and stunt work and and really cool choreography in that sequence. And unlike something like the Burly Brawl or the fight with Seraph, it does feel like there are real stakes because the objectives mm -hmm. of everybody are super clear. And they do all this work beforehand to like imbue the freeway with... Um, you know, just like, you told me to stay off the freeway. You said it was suicide. And Morpheus is like, let's hope I was wrong. Um, and and you know, all this stuff of like, this is a terrible idea. It's incredibly dangerous for a variety of reasons. And they, they even do like a lot of nice um, work where there's a, a very complicated, uh, but actually feels sophisticated choreography to you have the ghosts, you have agents, Right. And then you have like the key maker of Trinity of Morpheus. There's so many moving pieces and they they kind of come together in this really amazing like sort of symphony of like little mini action sequences that that tr string together into one big, long, really cleverly envisioned set piece. Like I love the sequence when go the ghost gets into the car with them and he's got the razor blade and Trinity's driving and she and Morpheus are like doing, you know, very complicated fighting. <laughs> Slap fighting. Yeah. It's a fight exactly. in a car. It's so great. <laughs> right. It's like a three-way fight, right, in a moving car. It's really cool. And meanwhile, the, in the idea of the ghosts, the twins are is really cool where they can like phase in and out of things so you know when morpheus takes the samurai sword and stabs it through the seat to like go into him and he like phases 
out, but then he, you know, gets out of the car. Is all that the car. stuff is, yeah. all of that stuff is just like, this is what I want from the Wachowskis and a Matrix movie is yes. like cool ideas that come together in an action sequence. And like I said, there's this sophistication to it where they're, they've got a lot of balls in the air, but they're not dropping any of them in that freeway chase. It's, Mm-hmm. To me, it's still just a really stunning set piece that I don't know if I've ever seen it really equaled. And is it too long? You can argue about that. But everything else on paper about it works super well and in the execution, I think. Yeah, totally. Well, well and yeah, speaking of the execution, you know, I was commenting on the CGI cars, but a lot of it, if, if not most of that whole sequence is yeah practical or is relying on practical elements like the shot that stood out to me this time is kind of early on when they go up on the overpass and trinity's driving and like does the cool like skid to a stop right in front of the camera like it's actually carrie ann moss doing that freaking cool like stunt work behind the car like that's really cool and even when uh you know on the the motorcycle section the cars around the motorcycle are cgi but the the person is real and it's actually, you know, stunt woman on the motorcycle weaving in and out doing those moves, not against oncoming traffic, but you're still dealing with real things. And so that's why, even though my brain while watching those moments is like, this isn't real. I always am dodging out of the way Mm -hmm. physically when watching that, because you can still feel enough of that energy and that momentum. And I think it adds to what you're saying. of like, it's viscerally executed and, dealing with story things that matter and that you can track in a really clear way throughout yeah well and any like any great action sequence that that goes on for as long as this one does it it knows that it has to have chapters and movements and when Mm -hmm. when trinity like jumps off that truck on a motorcycle with the key maker like holding (laughs) onto her like it's just and the music is like there's like Mm -hmm. almost like a angelic chorus comes in to announce the start of like badass trinity time uh it's just so exciting it's like now i get to see trinity on a motorcycle like yes this is what i want and then she's going against traffic because she has to it's even better um so it's it's just so much fun to watch a great action sequence like you said trisha have so many balls in the air never stay in one mode too long Mm -hmm. and with each mode it switches into it's actually escalating into cooler and cooler territory and that's probably why i do i personally bump on closing on the morpheus agent fight on the truck because i think just visually to me it looks the worst of all the visual effects in the sequence so it's like up until that moment it's just getting better and better and better for me and then it's like kind of like a wah wah ending as far as the way it looks um I know the stakes are high because it's like you're fighting an agent, but um, I get taken out of it by the green screeniness of it all. See, I forgive that part because I love Morpheus so much. And I mm-hmm. like there's a really cool character thing that's happening in that because we just saw him take out the ghost, which is awesome. Like with the samurai sword and the gun and whatever. That's already <laughs> cut a car cool. with a sword. <laughs> you cut yeah. the car with a samurai sword. Um, guys, I don't care. I truly don't care. Um, it's the Matrix. I know it is. Um, but and I've, I've. There are certainly physics things, lots that don't work or don't make any sense in the sequence. I don't care. Um, like not the least of which is like Morpheus leans over to stab the, like stab the samurai sword into the side of the truck, which he could only do like I don't know maybe two feet, three feet, however long long his arm is, right? But then when he jumps down, he's fully like six feet down or. Six, eight feet down the side of the truck where anyway um <clears throat> lots of things that, that don't make sense at all 
But I love that sequence with Morpheus because it's this great moment of faith. And like, it reminds us of like the Neo, you know, um, relationship that the entire first movie hinges on is like, Morpheus is going to do all of this because he believes that Neo is going to come, right? He has that little prayer at the end that he murmurs um, and ho- like, it hopes that Neo is going to get there and it, you know, harkens back to his fight with Smith where he got captured before and here he is fighting another agent and um, protecting the keymaker, all this stuff. Naomi catches him. It rules so hard. He falls off the back of the truck and she's right there. I think that all of the character stuff that's happening in that part of the, the thing makes up for the sort of, yeah, it, it, it doesn't look quite as good as the rest of it, but I'm still here for it for character reasons. Yeah. Well, and so... To like to zoom out a little bit because like yeah. we we just got like pulled into all the action because there was a lot mm-hmm. of really cool action and a lot of stuff to talk about. But something that struck me immediately, and you mentioned this on the Matrix episode, Alex, uh, is that in the Matrix, in the original, all of the sci-fi ideas function as allegory and can be talked about, but we never really need to see them or never need to see them for long enough to raise questions about how they work Mm. and the mechanics of it and the logic of it. But so much of both of these sequels, you know, I I think, I think you kind of have to, right? You're going to make a sequel. You want to show the audience, the world, like kind of deliver on the promise of these things that were talked about, like Zion and like the machine world. And let's Mm -hmm. go into the matrix and pull it apart. But I think the problem is that they don't make sense in a like, literal mechanical way or there's just too many like other questions that i have once we're literally saying that this human person is a program that has feelings and (laughs) has offspring and is in love with this person or that person like all of that is really interesting to think about abstractly but once you're like sitting and having a conversation with the Merovingian and Monica Bellucci is there and they're like, mm-hmm. he really, he's friend, like all these things <laughs> just kind of start to, uh, you know, pull apart the, the believability of it a little bit. Right. And I feel like that's where a lot of the, the sequels falter for me. Yeah. You know, what's cool is people in black leather and shades fighting on top of trucks you know, what's not cool is people in black leather and shades standing in a bathroom arguing about whether this boy can kiss this lady because his girlfriend is there. Like, right. it's suddenly, like, the, the sort of, right. like, demythologizes everything. Yes. Mm. Right. It's, it's definitely weird in these sequels to see them in their cool Matrix outfits in just, like, strangely domestic or boring spaces. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it, it just kind of breaks some of that, yeah, the coolness from the first movie. But, yeah, this this movie, every time I watch it, it starts to break for me when he goes to see the Oracle because just in one breath, she's like, yeah, that's a program. That's a program. The programs run those birds. Also werewolves, aliens, ghosts, every story you've heard of vampires. Those are, those are programs. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, wait, so wait, like what's a program? Like, first of all, in like, in this world, like, what does that mean to be a program? Agents made sense, like in a really intuitive way in the first movie, these are like security, you know, software that is here to put down any humans that are misbehaving. That's like a very simple function for like a machine intelligence to be doing. And you need like a way longer on ramp, I think, for 
a whole new world of essentially like true artificial intelligence programs with personalities and desires and human like qualities, um, which I guess uh, are supposed to be governing like physics and birds, but have chosen to misbehave. And so now are exiled and uh, are smuggling other programs. <laughs> like that's, it's a whole, it's almost like a whole new story world. Like that, that's not like none mm -hmm. of that is suggested in the first movie. Like, like this whole universe of human like uh, programs with feelings. Uh, and I just, you can't just say that. You can't just have one person just say all that very quickly. And now I'm on board uh, and like, can comprehend what the rest of this movie is it, that you need for that kind of like massive shift in world building. You need Morpheus guiding Neo through a new training program and like showing him examples of what it looks like when a program decides to disobey and what the agents are going to do to them. And that's why they have to run away and hide in the Merovingian's mm. castle or something. You know, mm -hmm. I, like I, I need some kind of visual reference to like understand what the hell you're talking about. And the movie just zips right through it. And then we're off to the Merovingian's place. And I guess his henchmen are werewolves and ghosts and vampires. But does that matter that they're werewolves and vampires if they're just normal people anyway, basically? Well, the ghosts uh, have so powers. I mean, the, well, I mean, the yeah. ghosts do, absolutely. But yeah. but the werewolf and vampire part, I guess Monica Bucci has to shoot them with a silver bullet. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's a lot of like new information and a lot of new world building that, is not shown to us in a way that we can mm. easily understand like why this is happening or what it means. And I think that's like really my biggest problem with the the kind of cadence that this movie develops of like monologue, action scene, monologue, action scene is that like you mentioned an on-ramp and I think we need that. We need to be like you're saying introduced to these ideas and we've spoken about how the original Matrix is great at this and like showing us using action scenes to draw us into the characters, but also like show us the world and like slowly walk us through how this world works. And these sequels don't really do any of that. It's like, you know, one of my problems with the Seraph scene, like I mentioned before, where he and Neo like just have to fight for a while until Seraph is satisfied that he's fought well enough it's like that doesn't do anything like that doesn't really that's not doing character work it's not doing world work that much like that's time that could have been spent easing us into this idea of everything around you is a program and you know they do some of it i guess visually with you can we kind of go into neo mode and we can see that some people are different colors than other colors but like that's not doesn't you know, tell me work, anything right yeah. that we need to do and so i think that's that's something that's frustrating for me was for me on these rewatches it is not even bumping on what they're trying to do but like wishing they'd use the time differently to like draw me in and get me like really calibrated and oriented in this world mm. right I, I think another reason that doesn't work very well the first this movie is about the same length as the first movie um and the first movie has about 10 characters in it. The, the the crew of the Nebuchadnezzar and Agent Smith, arguably the other two agents, but we don't even care about them. They're just there. And the Oracle, basically. That's like the entire cast of that movie. This movie has half of the cast of the original movie. Everyone's still alive. Plus, we'll, we'll excuse Link because Link is supposed to be Tank and 
drama, actor studio, whatever. So right. like, let's not even say Link is a new character. We also have Z, Cass, Niobe, uh, Jason Locke, Seraph, Bane, Captain Mifune, Counselor Hammond, the Kid, uh, the Merovingian, <laughs> Persephone, the Twins, the Keymaker, and Ergo, the Architect. Like all of these new characters, and not, that's not even counting people who just sort of like show up for a scene or whatever. Like these are all characters who are either important in this movie or going to be important in the next movie. And the next movie introduces new characters too. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just like, it's, yeah, it's just doing a lot of like, here's a bunch of ideas we had um, that maybe could have been cool if you were making a whole season of television or if you were making, I don't know, five movies or something, but it just feels like it's so much shoved into this one movie that then we don't get, as you're saying, Michael, we don't get a ton of time to really to really buy or or be taught what some of the, you know, you disobeyed a direct order. Okay, what does that mean? Like, what what is an indirect order? Uh, <laughs> like, there's just a lot of, there's, there's just a lot of this, like, bureaucracy and stuff that just feels like it's not actually doing anything very star wars prequel in a lot of those scenes mm -hmm. it feels yeah. like we didn't come here for this like space negotiation but here we are <laughs> right we're not quite at the point where you can jack into the matrix and have your operator upload a training program on flying a helicopter into your brain but every day we're getting closer and when you do need to upload massive amounts of data not to someone's brain, but, you know, to another person's computer. Massive is the way to do it. Massive is a file sharing service that lets media professionals quickly transfer terabytes of data to anyone in the world over the cloud. With Massive, there are no limits to the amount of data you can send. And Massive has 150 servers worldwide, which means whoever you're sending the file to will be able to download it at a maximum unthrottled speed. Transfers are encrypted, so no one but the sender and recipient can access the files, and sending files with Massive is super simple. You don't need a subscription to sign up or a complicated IT setup. Just pay as you go at 25 cents per gigabyte. To learn more and to sign up for Massive, head to massive.io slash beyond dash the dash screenplay. When you sign up at that link, you'll get 100 gigabytes free towards your transfer. That's massive.io slash beyond dash the dash screenplay for 100 gigabytes free. The link is also in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. I do think, though, in the middle act of this movie, I think that like sort of structurally and allegorically the movie takes on like an almost Greek mythology structure to it where it becomes a little bit anecdotal, like a little bit anecdotal um, where they're there. You know, we, we tell Neo that he has to go to the source. Right. And so like, but he, he learns that from the Oracle, the Oracle sends him to the Merovingian, the Merovingian makes him jump through a bunch of hoops and like, then he has to you know charm persephone <laughs> make out with persephone um and then like she takes him to the key maker then he's got to fight these bad guys and, and it takes on this like almost yeah like odysseus level of quest of like we're going to this island now and now we're going to this island and here we need to get this potion because that'll help us do this thing here we need to like play a weird mind game with this guy and like beat him at that and then we'll you know it has sort of that um structure to it and, and that part i actually you know, I hear what you guys are saying, um, and I think it's a fair critique about the world building piece, but the approach to that kind of a structure in the middle act of uh, the movie, as the movie functions as a middle act 
of a trilogy, I actually think is not a bad idea. It does remind me of, of Two Towers a little bit in that way. Um, and it, it also does like, you know, Two Towers introduces a ton of additional characters that we didn't meet in Fellowship. Fellowship has a small cast, as we talked about. And here's all these other people. Um, you know, here's the... the citizens of Rohan here's Helm's Deep here's Gollum here's like all of these other things going on it expands the world and, and introduces us into new things meanwhile characters are going on little quests that come together you know at the end um so I think in the approach they're doing something actually pretty smart um the problem, I think, is more of a pacing issue, as you guys are pointing out, and a little bit of a world building issue where, um, you know, the thing about something like Two Towers is that it's all done with such a light touch in terms of exposition, um, where like no one sits us down and like explains to us the history of of Rohan or whatever um, in in some ways. I'm trying to remember if there is actually a scene where maybe it's like when Aragorn sees the like broken sword. And <laughs> it's, it's not like four this. minutes long if it's in there. It, it <laughs> right isn't. You're right. You're right. Um, no lectures. But also that the world building is embedded in conflict, right? Or like embedded in the A plot. So it's like, I absolutely have to know this piece of information about how things work in order to get out of this scene alive because there's an action sequence happening or whatever. And I do mm. think that this movie really struggles in that respect. But overall... You know, it is goofy, but I don't mind like, hey, we failed with the Merovingian. Now we got to try with his wife. She wants something I think is incredibly uh, immature <laughs> and bizarre, <laughs> but it does sort of function on like a Greek myth kind of a way. It's like, I want to feel like I'm in love again. Okay, well, that's something people want in stories. Um, and this is a story. <laughs> this is a myth, right? And programs are people, apparently. Well, again, this is this is mythology. And I think that, you know, the movie is kind of relying on us to stay in that archetypal mythological mindset. And I don't know if it's fair to ask that of us because this movie is trying to ground itself in many other ways. Um, but in some of those other scenes, like with the Merovingian um, and the key maker and all of this stuff and the, the doors and the, you got to get the right key and go through and it's open for pie number of seconds. And then you got to shut down the power grid. Like, I think all of that stuff is doing the archetypal thing, mythological thing that the original matrix did really well. And if you can stay with it on that level, I actually think it's, I actually think it's a probably good approach structurally. You know, I, I agree that there's, I'm totally fine with that almost episodic nature mm -hmm. once they go back into the matrix and we're, we're off. Part of what makes it feel a little bit rough is that we do spend so much time in Zion before that. Truly, you know, yeah. I think mm -hmm. an, an, a truly unnecessary amount of time. Like I, yeah, I do want to see absolutely. Zion. I want to check in there, understand briefly what the stakes are for this place getting destroyed. That's what the main problem is. Maybe show us show that shot of the drills going down like early in the movie with all the squiddies. Um, so it stakes right up front. Yeah. Um, but then get us out of there, get us back to the matrix where we, where we want to be. And, and then, you know, then you maybe have more time to ease us into this new world that we're entering of programs. And then maybe you have more time at the end too to, to have the third act be revolving around this heist, essentially this yeah. like three pronged heist right now. It's literally, we get essentially a montage, you know, f flashes of images, of the heist taking place as they are planning it and then it's mm -hmm. already over but like i want to see jada pinkett smith 
like in a full scene do something not just yeah. like a couple flashes of her jumping over a guy you know I'd like i'd like why spend all this time talking to an old man counselor about the water recycling machines why not more time on a cool heist <laughs> like so i think that's <laughs> that's part of my problem with yeah just the overall structure of the movie is the time is allocated really strangely uh in, in some ways there's like a natural i think there's there's so many pieces here that seem like they naturally call out for more emphasis or less emphasis and it seems like everything was kind of reversed mm-hmm. yeah that's that's what i was trying to get at in terms of pacing i think that the whole bit yeah. in the matrix is structurally well approached and like neo's quest i don't i don't bump on it really in, in terms of like what he has to do um but the the issue is yeah, we're spending so much time in other places with other things that don't have anything to do with that quest or, you know, don't seem obviously interrelated to it. And I do think that that is becomes a slog to get through for sure. And part of the problem there, too, is how they were trying to tie in this extra content, the the animatrix yeah. and the video. It's like you can see Niobe do some of that stuff. You just have to go play the video game or watch uh-huh. the cutscenes of the video game. You know, right. um, the 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 first animatrix short is uh, called the final flight of the osiris and it's Mm -hmm. they see that the machines are attacking that's the first time any human is like figured realize that and then it's them trying to get a package off uh basically to before they are killed uh in the real world they're trying to get a package off in the matrix by running from agents and and then that way zion will know and then niobe gets that information in Enter the Matrix, the video game. And then like part of her quest is to then get that information to Zion, you know, so then all we see in the movie is just like, hey, we're being attacked. Like you only get that little bit. So it's it's fine because you don't need to see those scenes to understand, okay, they're being attacked and, and like humanity is in danger. Great. But I also think the problem is you don't, you don't feel the weight of, of the attack. You do, you don't actually, you know, if you think about Lord of the Rings where it's like you, you keep cutting back to these random children. We don't know who they are, but they are terrified in this room or yeah. whatever. And it's like, okay, but this is just like humanity's going to end. The machines are coming. Okay. What that doesn't really mean anything to me, like viscerally because you're just talking about it. I'm not actually like feeling what that means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think Patrick H. Willems and his, uh, his kind of matrix sequels rewrite video where he tries to kind of take what's there and rework it into kind of his ideal version of the sequels. He suggests starting with that final fight of the Osiris as like a prologue scene for the movie. Like, and Mm -hmm. what a cool cold open that would be to have, you know, this ship of people that all of them die. You know, we, we get to see agents, we get to see, you know, firsthand how many machines are going to come to Zion if they drill through and get there um, that's a cool cold open for a, a Matrix sequel, and and even you know seeing Niobe get the package and introduce her as a new character early on and see her be badass for a minute. Uh, you know, these are all things that I kind of want from my you know, Two Towers opening, you know, new yeah. movie cold open. Um, and it's it's a kind of a shame. It was really cool at the time as a teenager to to get to access all the you know the transmedia stuff and and experience it out of order it was fun to put the puzzle together but you know i i would prefer a standalone movie <laughs> that 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 holds up with some maybe you can even do extra stuff on top of that but don't don't save mm-hmm. some of the best stuff for the transmedia like right yeah, yeah, yeah. make my movie theater experience top notch right yeah absolutely real quick one of the other um uh shorts is the kid 
uh, being yeah. woken up out of the matrix. And, and you know, that's, that's a pretty cool one. But again, when you just watch the movie, it's like there's multiple lines about like, I didn't save him, he saved himself. And it doesn't mean anything if you just watch right. the movie, you know, and it like, it, so it's like, it's actually alienating to the audience who didn't engage with the animatrix before yeah. watching the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I, to your, to your point, Trisha, about that middle section, I also enjoy that section. Like I'm engaged with the movie during that once, once it is in that mode, and I think the the thought I've been having is that it's, you know, unlike Lord of the Rings, which is obviously three movies all made at once, where it's clearly all one story. Mm. You know, they're it, from the fellowship. We know that Frodo needs to get the ring to Mount Dune. And that's his goal the whole time. It's like a very singular goal. And there is kind of a goal shift going from the original Matrix to Reloaded, where, you know, the end, the Matrix ends with Neo's going to wake everybody up. But then in this yeah. one, it's like, well, no, you got to get to the source. Uh, and we don't quite know what that means or what's supposed to happen once he gets there. So there's confusion around even what the, like, super objective is. Mm. And I think that's problematic on a plot level, but also kind of on a thematic level where, yes. like, yeah the 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 stops we're making along the way don't feel like they're connected thematically to kind of whatever happens in the end uh and weirdly watching it this time you know neo talking to the old man and the machine you know the water power plant or whatever i realized that's actually a very thematic conversation and is yeah. maybe more relevant to kind of what neo learns by the end than some of the other stuff that goes on but you don't know that's what the movie is about when you're watching those scenes. And so I feel like that's just another, just the mishmash and just the the ordering feels like it wasn't quite right to get us on board with things that in isolation and with the like proper execution, like are objectively super cool. I think what you're saying, Michael, is dead on. And it all sort of comes to a head in the confrontation with the architect, right? Which like, I don't necessarily mind the impulse to have Neo confronted with something completely unexpected. And even, you know, this horrifying uh, recontextualization of his experiences so far, which is that, like, there's always a one and this is like just another measure of control, right? I actually think that's a really cool idea to make him, I love that. you know, face off against um, in the climax of the thing. I think the problem is, though, that the themes haven't built toward anything in particular. And so the climactic choice feels like it lacks um, that sort of cathartic, we know what the choice means thematically moment. You know, we talked about in the, first, in the last episode, when Neo turns to fight Agent Smith, we know exactly what that choice means thematically. We know what it means for Neo mm -hmm. to start to believe that he is the one. Um, instead of running away, we know what it means to turn and fight. And it's nice It's nice in the first Matrix movie where they have everybody, you know, they have Trinity going like, run, run away, Neo, right? And he doesn't. He turns mm -hmm. to fight. Um, I wish that when Neo is looking at those two doors that I they meant anything to me in terms of <laughs> right. theme or his arc, right? This is the problem when you have a character that is 
not just all powerful, but that is essentially confident, right? All they try to do in this movie with Neo in terms of character development and arc, which is what theme is, right? The arc of your central character is the theme or is mm -hmm. often the primary way that the theme is expressed. Um, he doesn't have a proper arc in this. It's like he thinks Trinity might die and he doesn't want that to happen. Um, and that's what the arc is, right? It doesn't signal a change. Like nothing is is being learned. Nothing is like sort of broken that needs to be repaired. It just, it isn't there. And unfortunately, I mentioned in the last episode that the love story with Trinity in the first Matrix really only kind of works because it's this archetypal thing and it's you know you pointed out she's just kind of in love with the one or like the idea of yeah hope for their survival it's not really based mm -hmm. on anything that's like a real reason for to be in love <laughs> um other than they're both really cool and really pretty people and i think that the work of this movie would be to ground that relationship to make it about something um and I don't think this movie succeeds at doing that. And so, like, that's a problem. Like, I think that th th there's a sex scene in this movie. And it's it's designed to sell us on Trinity and Neo. It and so it doesn't. it doesn't do that. It doesn't. <laughs> it simply doesn't do that. Like, um, and I'm not a person you have to work very hard to sell sex scenes to. Like, I like them. I think the movie should have them. I'm into it. I just, it just really doesn't do the narrative thing that it needs to be doing. Um, like, I would rather see something else of, like, them, if it has to be in Zion, I don't think it has to be, by the way. It could be aboard the Nebuchadnezzar. But, like, it has to be them ha happy together and not, like, you know, that they're, uh, it's about, it's gotta be about something. Um, and not just about like attraction or just like, I need you. I need you. Okay. Like that's not what love <laughs> is in a movie. It doesn't work that way. And again, if Neo is concerned that, listen, I know I'm supposed to be the one, which means I know that I have to save all of humankind. However, I am in love with one single human person. And I'm worried that that is going to be a problem for me. What if I have to choose some time between saving a hundred thousand strangers and saving Trinity? What am I supposed to do? That That is an aspect of being the one that I don't know if I'm prepared to do, right? Like what if I'm, in, am I inherently selfish? Is that something that like the one can be? Does that mean I'm not, I, I shouldn't be the one? I'm too weak to be the one? Wouldn't these all be great questions? <laughs> these are great character things for uh, a protagonist. I just, yeah, and it, it really does not. Um, and, and that makes me sad. And I think it also, you know, there's people really bump on that architect scene. Um, I think there are a variety of reasons, but the choice also doesn't mean anything. And then... Neo catches Trinity before she hits the car and there's a bullet inside and he reaches into her body and he pulls it right out. And then he reaches into her chest and restarts her heart with his hand. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, that visual. she gets up and uh, says, you know, I think that makes us even. And um, I it just, wow, is not, it doesn't have it. 
we just are not going to have an emotional response to it because you can tell us until you're blue in the face that these two are in love and that should matter to us. But unless you show it to us, it just kind of doesn't. And so mm. um, I like Trinity and Neo as people. I like them as a couple. I want to like them. I want to know what the cost and the, and the potential reward of the relationship is, right? Like, what do they get from each other? What do they gain? But also, what is the cost in their greater roles as resistance fighters? This could be Casablanca. This could be as big as that's what that's what the choice of Casablanca is. It's like, are you going to rejoin the fight, Rick, or are you going to choose Ilsa? This could be as good as that, and it just isn't. Sad. Oh. Yeah, they should have gone for another like early 2000s middle chapter love story and copied uh, attack of the clones that one, like, <laughs> also really nails it <laughs> right. well but they do copy is empire strikes back which is you're going to have to choose between saving your friends or continuing your training and he chooses yeah. to save his friends and yeah. they, they lose at the end you know like like you actually feel the weight of his choice and then the third movie is him having to um you know, to sort of deal with that the consequences yeah yeah yeah. yeah, that's a good point, Bry. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, there's so much to talk about. Why don't we move into <laughs> lessons and we we will continue a lot of this in, in revolutions because some of the, you know, the aftershocks of these problems are felt to the very end of that yeah. one. Um, but yeah, so why don't we go into lessons? Brian, do you want to start us off? Uh, sure. Trisha was just touching on some of this, um, but uh, I what one of the reasons I really did defend this movie and one of the things I really liked about it was how hard it questioned Neo. Um, like you are because that because that's obviously what the first movie is doing is mm -hmm. is this guy the one, you know, Morpheus believes, but like he didn't make the jump and I don't know, we're going to kill him and, you know, the, all this stuff. And then by the end of the movie, like he's the one he's good. He is beginning to believe, you know, like we're all good. Um, and then this movie zooms out and it's like Morpheus is just kind of this crazy prophet who like Neo's just one of his henchmen, you know, <laughs> and and they're like, oh, that guy, he like can do some cool stuff, but He's just this crazy prophet's like, buddy, I don't really know. Um, and then, of course, the, the architect scene, like everything about this movie is kind of going, maybe Neo isn't as special as the first movie made him out to be. Mm. Um, and I think that that's a really interesting choice, you know, and, and that's why it's so frustrating to me that the third movie does not bother with that question at all. It's just like Neo is not even isn't a lot um but like <laughs> there's um there's it's just sort of like oh yeah he's fine he's the one he's gonna go do the big showdown and we're all we're all good you know i mean i'm sure it messes touches on it a little bit but like not in the way that this movie so i was like i don't know how i feel about this movie until i really see like what all of this is setting up and then you get to the third movie and it's just kind of a different movie um but yeah so i, I the bottom line is i like the idea of making your character web and your audience doubt the protagonist you know we're so used to superhero movies or chosen one narratives like harry potter or star wars where we just kind of spend the whole movie confident that they're going to win it's just a question of how are they going to win and we know that they are the sort of special person or, or the movie is telling us like this is the only person with superpowers so like that is that's it um and uh, and i just like that this movie makes this question that if you uh, i'm thinking about Frodo and Bilbo as characters, not as forget about the book or the movie that they are in, but just as characters, Frodo takes the ring and goes for it. And they're like, 
all right like sucks to be you buddy like <laughs> like good good luck um and he's like i wish i wasn't the one to have to do this but i'm the one to have to do it so i'm gonna do it whereas bilbo there's there's so much doubt surrounding him you know gandalf's like he's your burglar and bilbo's like wait i'm your burglar and they're like wait he's our burglar you know and like everybody is doubting him the whole time and his character arc becomes about having to prove himself um which i just think makes us lean forward and get more invested in uh in whether or not he's going to succeed you know and i think that like that is what do you do with a character who becomes omnipotent at the end of the first movie is you question whether they actually are the 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 who the first movie was telling you they they are and i think that's that's interesting mm. yeah yeah just just to add to that i i love so many ideas in the sequels and i think the yeah. idea of deconstructing the mythology of the chosen one is really cool and it actually takes on kind of a political uh frame when you think about like this is a system of control we are gonna like use this Race yeah. of this person say hey he's your savior like he's gonna save you lead you to the promised land actually he's just like actually a puppet of this larger system of power he's not even aware he's being used that's a really cool like mind-blowing we're really good down the rabbit hole now like statement to make like you know the the whole monomyth itself could be a system of control in in yeah. the machine's hands um what a cool idea. I wish I walked away from this movie, like really feeling that, you know, and like, like the whole movie led to that moment, that aha tragedy moment of realizing, oh God, what if none of it was real? And I think, yeah, just because the movie is so strange and goes to so many random places, I'm not prepared for that revelation in the, I'm not, I'm not primed for it in the right way. Um, and, but I think it is a great idea. And I, and I do appreciate the Wachowskis, not just, um, doing the normal sequel thing, which would be just more of the same, uh, same kind of hero's journey uh, story two more times, but rather go in this really radical direction of deconstructing it. And, and I agree, Brian, I, I think the third movie then complicates that because it kind of just goes back to being a savior story, but um, mm -hmm. uh, we'll get, we'll get to that next week. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, Alex, what, what is your lesson? Sure. Yeah. Mine is, you know, a critical lesson just coming off of what we've been talking about where there's so much so you, so you end the first movie and matrix uh, neo has this amazing you know final monologue into the phone you know i'm going to show these people what you don't want them to see like th there's this promise of what's going to come next like he, there's going to be a revolution in the matrix i guess like he's going to be you know waking so many people up just the way morpheus woke him up what does this mean can the machines control anymore if if he can fight them off and protect people um there's just this, this wide open world that i'm excited to see and then we drop into this movie and uh it doesn't show me any of that we we have we have like some lines of dialogue where morpheus says uh in the last six months or whatever we've woken up more minds than uh you can imagine uh but like that that's that's part of neo's like hero story like what does it mean that he's the one like like people talk about him a lot and are questioning if he's the one but i haven't really seen him do any one stuff like besides he's really good at fighting agents and he can fly um but yeah i i just feel like this movie doesn't show me the things i want to be shown <laughs> uh and and whether it's new world building with the programs whether it's showing me what it means for you to be the one what does that what are what are the pros and cons of being the one uh right now it's just like i want to have sex with trinity but there's a bunch of 
seekers here who want to give me blankets. <laughs> um, so, so it's, yeah, it's just, it's, it's just, a, it's a, it's a movie that tells me a lot of things. A lot of people talking at me about ideas, about off-screen events, but it's actually not showing me most of the most compelling, you know, events that are actually happening in the story world off-screen. Um, so I think it's just, it's just a good lesson in, you know, choose what you show, uh, well, I don't think that's the lesson. Basically, show me show me what I want to see. Show me the cinematic stuff. You know, if you have this is a huge story that they've tried to grapple with here. They they spun it off into the Animatrix and into the video game. Um, and it, it, it just continues to be bizarre to me what they decided to leave on screen in the feature film and what they left off screen. And I think the most compelling things uh, that I want to see on screen are the stakes for the characters like what is their journey what what is their life now uh what are they going through and i think we don't see enough of that and we see a lot of new characters talking about stuff and referencing things off screen um and that just doesn't make for a compelling movie experience uh so mm. show don't tell i guess is the lesson mm. <laughs> the, yeah. the everlasting uh, eternal yep. lesson yeah yeah cool yeah trisha what's your lesson I have a little micro lesson about something this movie does really well, and it is the Chateau sword fight, um, yes, uh, if we can call fight. it that. I <laughs> love that fight. And I was thinking so about good. it today. It's really great. Um, it actually is a really nifty sleight of hand, little brilliant piece of, little brilliant set piece uh, right in the middle of this movie, because it introduces this idea that there are bad guys that are not agents, but that are also not humans. And so it pits Neo against enemies we've never seen before. We've never seen Neo mm -hmm. fighting people that are not just regular humans or other like, you know, somebody like Morpheus in a training program kind of thing. Um, and we've only really ever seen him fighting agents or humans who are going to become or potentially could become agents. But the Chateau fight strips all of that away. And it's just like, okay, we're in a physical space. We are in the world of the Matrix. These are not humans. They're also never going to become agents. So they don't have any of the same objectives that agents do. They can't shape shift around and like get somewhere or show up somewhere that they weren't otherwise. And so it kind of raises all of these questions in our mind about what Neo's powers are in this particular fight. We've never seen this kind of fight before. It's really cool and interesting on that sort of like narrative story world building level. And then the movie does a few really interesting things. I mean, I think it starts off in the really expected way, but it's a nice little bit of comic relief where they try to shoot him, right? And he stops a whole wall of bullets. It's just a fun little moment. But then the Merovingian is like, okay, kill him. And so the one thing that that does from a narrative standpoint is it separates Neo from Trinity and Morpheus, which you need because you need logistically to get Trinity and Morpheus and the key maker away from Neo because otherwise there's no stakes. If Neo can defend them, then they can't get into like fights and hijinks of their own and we have no freeway chase, right? So it separates them from Neo and ties up Neo for long enough, right? And then of course they have that wonderful mechanic of like he tries to catch up to them and like He's out on a mountain somewhere and he has to fly back and Link can't help him at that exact moment because Link's doing the other thing within whatever. It, it, it's, it's really just smart mechanically. But then within the sequence itself, 
There are a lot of really smart and interesting things it does. And I think the coolest moment in it is the one where he stops that blade with his hand, right? That guy mm-hmm. swings a blade right at his face and he stops it with his hand. And then he starts mm-hmm. to bleed. And the Merovingian mm-hmm. goes, you see, he's just a fan, right? And it kind of like redoubles our interest. We lean forward like, oh, crap, is Neo just a man? If he could bleed in the Matrix, we thought he was all powerful. Like maybe there are real stakes in this fight. Maybe this is like something he can't just fly away from or or get out of in an easy way. I don't know. It's just a really cleverly designed little micro sequence. You know what I wish? I wish that the fact that Neo is fallible and can bleed came back ever in the rest of this movie or in the next yeah. one. Um, but it's a really cool little moment. And it just, it gives that scene so much momentum and so much playfulness and curiosity and stakes. And like, it's just really fun and cool to watch for that reason, where every time someone swings a blade at Neo, we start to wonder, is he going to get cut? Is he going to get hurt? It feels like that blade has weight and meaning to it in a way that like so many of the other, like the burly brawl doesn't feel like it has anything like that. Right. Because we've seen Neo fighting agents before. We know what agents are and we've never seen Neo get hurt up until that point in the movie. So Chateau fight. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it does two things there. One of which is leveling up Neo's abilities. Like, look, I can stop a blade with my hand. But then the other side of it, as you say, is like, oh, but now the stakes are higher because he he did a thing that was maybe a little out of his ability and it cost him a little bit so like mm-hmm. what does that mean and like you said that doesn't really come back more in the, in the rest of the trilogy but uh but it's kind of cool that it does it sort of raises both ends of the spectrum exactly i said to add you know narrative functionality aside just aesthetically i love that scene. oh hell the yeah music, <laughs> it's the so flow cool. of the fight the choreography is so good and so it, it feels so like a great. dance it's like a dance sequence yes. but like the coolest yeah. dance sequence of all time and you know the final <laughs> kind of movement of it when they jump off the balcony and he's just surrounded by people he got the two sticks yep. and he's just taking them all down it's just so cool uh and it's it feels like when the wachowskis are doing action at you know at their finest it does feel just almost like this beautiful uh, live like performance yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's yeah it's ballet it's amazing yeah i Young Michael didn't like that scene because he wanted guns and shooting and explosions. Uh, but like I've swords? since come to really appreciate. No, but like wow. now I appreciate it. I appreciate that. Oh, well, also like if he can stop bullets, why can't he stop a sword? Doesn't matter. I've come to appreciate the, yeah, the aesthetics of it and all the things you guys are saying are amazing. And it's now, yeah, absolutely one of my favorite scenes in all the Matrix movies because it's yeah. yes. really, really good. Yeah. Um. Awesome. Is it my turn? Yes, it is. Yes. Tell yeah. us your okay. lesson, What is your Michael? lesson, Michael? I'm really trying to decide. You know, I, <laughs> I, this is one of those movies where there are lots of like specific little lessons that you can point to. And we've talked about a lot of things that could have worked better that, that didn't. But I just have this like empathy for creators put in this situation of, yeah. you made the best thing of all time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go do it again. You don't have as much time. You have exponentially more expectations, lots money. of money. Uh, and like none of those things are necessarily good for yeah. <laughs> the thing that you have to do now, which is craft more story. And so, uh, especially watching at this time, I felt 
and this as always can be projection, but I felt the Wachowskis and all the creators being pulled in all these ways, trying to do something cool and original and new, but also delivering on so much of what was great about the original. And I just don't know that there's a way through that maze where you're trying to create a sequel. It's got to be bigger, but it's got to be surprising. You want to have, you know, do something new and original and put things on screen that people haven't seen before, both from a technical perspective, but also from a thematic perspective. And these movies are also like very progressive, as you've been kind of alluding to, Alex, like they're political but also even just like there are black people in this movie. There were black Lots. people in movies back in 2003. Right. Like most of the cast in some ways is like, so all these things that are happening that I think are, I, I can feel them wanting to do something really cool and unique and that is like generous and like fun for an audience, but in being pulled in all those directions, you know, things kind of falling through the cracks and, and being left with what this is. And so I, I don't, have a a lesson but i guess it's it's the question that continues to drive me which is like (laughs) how do you balance all these things as a person and how should we as an audience go into things like sequels and so this is Mm. all very much going to be in my mind as we go into resurrections obviously Mm -hmm. also Um, we got to talk about that next week yeah yeah Awesome. Okay, cool. Well, why don't we quickly... I dodged a bullet there. I didn't have a lesson. Wow, you stopped Uh, the bullet? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, what have you guys been watching recently? Trisha, what have you been watching recently? So I am really excited to check out a new movie that just came out on Netflix, The Power of the Dog. Um, And I have not seen it yet. Uh, It's the new Jane Campion film. And... I've seen quite a few Jane Campion things and and really enjoy her as a director. And but it occurred to me that I had never seen The Piano. Perhaps the mm. most important and most famous Jane Campion film of all time was missing in my life. So, it is also on your Netflix and you can just go and watch it, citizens of the world. Uh and I really <laughs> think you should. It's it's like a I really truly don't know how I missed it. It's a 1993 film, if you don't know, starring Sam Neill, Holly Hunter, uh, Harvey Keitel, and Anna Paquin. Um, it was nominated for a bunch of Oscars. Um, Anna Paquin and Holly Hunter both won Oscars for it. Anna Paquin was like 11 years old um, and won a supporting actress Oscar for it. And Jane Campion was nominated uh, and and won a screenplay um Oscar for it. It's very, very good. She was also nominated for director for it. One of one of the very first women ever nominated for best director. Um, one of seven still, right? One of only seven still. Like and that. at the time yeah. she was one of like three. She was like the second, I think, or third one. Mm-hmm. Um ridiculous. Uh but anyway, it is a love story. It's set in New Zealand in the 1800s and Holly Hunter plays a woman Um, who cannot speak, but plays the piano really beautifully. And she and her daughter, Anna Paquin, um, are there because Holly Hunter has been married off to Sam Neill, a man she has never met. And um, it turns into this like love triangle uh, with her and Harvey Keitel and Sam Neill. And meanwhile, there's lots and lots of piano playing um, and (laughs) 
lots of frustrated longing. Um, it rocked me. Uh, this movie's really good if you have not seen it. Um, it's just a very artful drama. It's one of the things uh, that Jim Campion does best is just like very intense drama. Um, staggering performances, a gorgeous score, beautiful cinematography, really wonderful writing. Um, I, a climax that made me scream aloud alone in my house. Um, I cannot recommend it more highly. And so I've heard nothing but great and amazing things about Power of the Dog, which is her new film that's out on Netflix. But uh, if you have not caught up on the piano, what are you doing? Go and watch the piano immediately. I remember seeing like scenes from it when my parents were watching it when I was a kid, but I, it's just like images. <laughs> mm. There's some very graphic sex scenes in it. Um, I think, so I think you would that not have been be... able to watch it as a child. Mm. Yeah. I, I feel like I saw, <laughs> I wasn't supposed to see things that I saw in that movie and that's why it's stuck yeah. in my mind. Yeah. 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 Okay. That That's why it's yeah. stuck there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> strong recommend. Alex, were you about though, to say yeah. that it's, Giving you Portrait of a Lady on Fire vibes? Her description, at least, sounds yeah. very Portrait yes. of a Lady on Fire. Yeah. 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 It's got a lot. Yeah, I it's, that too, which is awesome. I mean, I love a good, like, period romantic drama that's also, like, really thematically rich and really interesting. And so, yeah, this is definitely that. This is a Trisha movie. Big also, time. her next movie was called The Portrait of a Lady. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Glitch yep. in the Matrix. And Whoa. if I may jump in, yeah. yes. her most recent movie is called The Power of the Dog. Oh my God, is that what you're going to talk about? Which is, yeah. Yes, okay, um, good. Don't reveal too much because I, I really yeah. am going to watch it like tomorrow. I definitely will not reveal uh, any okay, plot good. stuff. Um, I mean, I guess maybe some minor like first act stuff, but um, it's, uh, yeah, it's this very sort of, understated quiet kind of like terrence malicky kelly reichardt kind of feeling movie um but uh, for me a lot of times those movies can be like too understated where i'm just mm -hmm. like okay cool there's a lot of like you know grass and like <laughs> people standing and like looking at things and i'm just kind of like okay but can we get some plot and power of the dog was i thought a really nice balance of those things where i really felt like i wanted to just sit in these scenes with Johnny Greenwood's score and just this beautiful, like natural outdoor cinematography. Um, but also it was like, but the plot is going to move forward now and like a thing is going to happen. So, you know, we are going to reward you for now sitting calmly and waiting <laughs> for this next thing. Um, yeah, the cast is great. It's Jesse Plemons and Kirsten Dunst who they're like, we played a couple on Fargo and then we became one in real life. And now we're just going to play couples and things. Mm -hmm. um, and then Benedict Cumberbatch who, plays in this movie both a tough guy and an american and hmm. i i don't know that he was the best choice uh he does <laughs> he does a good job um like he does you know it's been a comeback he's going to deliver a solid performance but it's also just like but i don't know that maybe eh. um and then cody smith mcphee who is someone you've seen in things like Planet of the Apes and X-Men but you can actually see his face in this movie which is you know nice because so he's one of those yeah I adore him. Slow West was his movie, his first movie that I saw oh, okay. that I really, really love. That's him and um, Ben Mendelsohn and Michael Fassbender, which I also strongly gotcha. recommend if you haven't seen Slow West. Nice. Um, and and yeah, the, the, the very general, like not even plot plot as much as um, 
the general idea of this movie is that Cumberbatch plays uh, this man who just sort of feels he's like threatened by change and compa compassion. He's a man's man and he doesn't, you know, go in for any of that kind of stuff. Uh, and Jesse Plemons is his brother, who is like a lot more sensitive. And and Kirsten Dunst, who is phenomenal in this, by the way. Um, of course, they find him boorish and hurtful for being the way he is. And uh, and then and then it goes from there. And, you know, what do what do all of these characters being around each other, what does that turn into basically? And that's all I'll say because, because then the movie sort of, once you get into kind of the second act, you're like, okay, that's what this movie is actually doing. And, you know, I'll let you enjoy it for yourself, but I recommend it. Yay. Awesome. What, what Jane Campion movies have you guys watched recently? I have also watched the power of the dog. <laughs> oh. Nice. Was that yours? No. Uh, my <laughs> okay. movie okay. is King Richard, uh, the, uh, the movie about Ooh, uh, yeah. Richard Williams. Yeah, the father of Venus and Serena Williams. Big it's, Willie. It's great. It's so good. It's it's, nice. a, it's like a joy. It's a great classic Oscar season movie. Will Smith is amazing. He's definitely getting Oscar buzz for good reason. Um, it's like, I don't even like sports movies, but this is a great sports movie. And I'm, I think largely because of its specificity and because it's about just this really like amazing family and 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 really interesting characters um so yeah i just yeah I, I can't really say much more than that besides it's just great and i think you're gonna have a good time watching it and you'll feel good and it's it's a good classic oscar season christmas time movie so love it can't go wrong king richard that's awesome it's very good to hear because i didn't know anything about it and then it showed up on you know hbo or whatever it was mm -hmm. and i was like what he's playing wait what and this is it's about that uh, I hope this is great. Um, so yeah, I'm glad to hear that it's good. Definitely watch it before it leaves HBO Max. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Nice. Michael? Awesome. Uh, so I recently started The Problem with Jon Stewart on mm. Apple TV Plus. Uh, and so I was a big Daily Show with Jon Stewart fan back in the day. That's like what I did in high school every night was like watch The Daily Show. Uh, and so I love Jon Stewart. Uh, and he's been gone for a long time uh, as far as like shows and commenting on political things and blah, blah, blah. And so when I heard that he was coming out with a new show on Apple, I was like, what's this going to be? Like, does the Jon Stewart thing work in 2021? Uh, and I've only watched two episodes. I think it's definitely wor worth watching. The first episode was a little bumpy because you could feel them trying to kind of do the daily show again, mm. but it's a different context and it's streaming. They have like ad breaks kind of, and it's, it took a while for me to get into the format. The second one flowed a lot better, but more importantly than any of that, the subject matter of each episode is really compelling mm. and it it's so that the two ones I watched were about war and freedom <laughs> and uh so like the first one is there are these burn pits that happen when you have an army out invading a country and you need to get rid of like waste what do you do there's no infrastructure in iraq so you build a burn pit where you throw anything you don't need anymore including like human waste and stuff and you just burn it and soldiers had to live right next to that and were inhaling all these fumes and blah 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 uh and so it's awful and so they they talk about it in an intellectual way but then they also bring on people like actual humans that were there and or people that are like fighting for change and that was the part of the show that i really responded to was like mm. oh we're getting to 
literally hear from people that know this stuff. So it's not just jokes or like a summary of things. It's a little bit of that. And then it's actually hearing from people that need to have their voices like amplified. Um, so I thought it was really great and I'm going to keep watching it. It's heavy, but it's good and it's all stuff. It feels very, you know, just listen to these people talk and kind of make up your mind about, you know, is this good or not? Uh, which I like in political things. So problem with John Stewart, uh, Apple TV plus, I definitely recommend. Nice. Okay. So we have talked about the matrix reloaded revolutions is next. It's. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Listen, we've been doing watch alongs with our patrons. Uh yes. and mm. and it's it's really helped me, especially the last watch through of Revolutions. It was like having my own Mystery Science Theater 3000 on Discord. It was wonderful. <laughs> so thank you, patrons, for making my most recent watch through this movie so joyous because extremely cathartic. The previous yeah. watch through of it was not as joyous. Yeah, I, I think. <laughs> I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation. I'm glad that I watched it again because I don't think I've seen it in probably a decade. And there are lots of thoughts, lots of lessons, lots of things to unpack, and lots of conversation to be had about how it may or may not play into what's next and how we're feeling about resurrections and all the things. So that'll be next week. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you to the patrons for supporting the show and making it possible. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. As always, our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi, and we will see you next week for The Matrix Revolutions. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.